Sappy Music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 29th, 2011. Now, as odd as this is going to sound, um, I need to invoke the light edition today. Yeah, I've got a small family, uh, well, unscheduled family, it's not really emergency, but complicated event that needs to be tending to, tended to today, so thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. and Not to worry, you you just got to take these things in stride. You First of all, make sure you know your scriptures. Make sure that you understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. Then roll up your sleeves, put on your armor, get into the fight. Plain and simple. This this program is is partly about well helping to equip you to get you know, to well to be effective in the battle that you are already in. You may not realize that you're in a battle, but see that's the thing. As soon as soon as Christ puts His name on it, on you, as soon as you are brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and trust and faith in Christ for your eternal salvation and what He's done for you, well, it's like painting a Big red bullseye right on your chest, and and the flaming darts of the uh, evil one uh, almost begin flying immediately. Uh, that's, that's kind of a weird way to put it. One of my favorite uh, Far Side cartoons is uh, is a cartoon where there's two deers that are talking to each other, and one of them has a red <laughs> target on his chest, and the uh, and the one the other deer says to him. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. And so it's that's my favorite Far Side cartoon. But see, that's the thing is, is that we are <laughs> Christians are like deers who've had a who've been born with a red target right there, ready made on their chest. And so, yeah, you may not realize just how precarious and dangerous your situation is as a Christian. Satan doesn't sleep. And Satan, let's put it this way, he's had thousands and thousands of years to study humanity. 
He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our vanity. He knows how to tempt us in a thousand different ways. And the reality is, is that the things that you're being tempted with have been tempted. Well, he, Satan's has tempted those other people with those same temptations for thousands of years. And he's rather good at what he does. And so how do you thwart the, 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 uh, the plans of the enemy? How do you roll back his temptations? How do you, uh, you know, cause his will to come to naught? Well, see, the thing he's always trying to get you to do is to trust you rather than God's word, to trust your intuition, your heart, your dreams, your visions, your own fanatical theology, rather than what God has revealed about himself. It's always about attacking, subverting, shunting, moving to the side, distracting people away from uh, what God's word says. And so this program, uh, it really spends a lot of time doing the discernment work so that you can go, wait a second. You know, I, that guy sure does have bright, shiny teeth and has some really slick hair, but I'm not sure if what he's saying is really what God's Word has revealed. Let me put that under scrutiny. And you open up God's Word, and you've learned some techniques to properly handle God's Word. Number one, looking at things in context, 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 learning about the proper distinction of law and gospel, which is clearly taught in uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans as well, uh, you know, very very uh, zealously uh, taught in the uh, his epistle to the churches in Galatia. So, I mean, there's certain techniques that, uh, you know, things you need to know. And then when you become skilled in, in hearing and listening for what God's word says, hearing the voice of the good shepherd, then when the wolf comes around, you sit there and go, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to fall for that. And it, it you get the privilege, the opportunity, the uh, the ability to love and serve your neighbor by helping them to see that they're being deceived and protecting them from the wolf and instead pointing him back to their good shepherd, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord who died and rose again on the third day for our sins and for our justification. That's what this program is all about. Now, as I said at the at the beginning of the program, today I'm invoking the light edition. I don't normally invoke it on a Tuesday. Um, like I said, I've, I've had something come up, kind of a family, unplanned family event. Um, well, it's not even an event, but anyway, um, if, 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 for those of you who are listening, if you could maybe say a prayer for the Roseboro family, we got a complicated issue that needs dealing with. And, uh, and, and my, my simple prayer would be, that uh, that God's will would be done, plain and simple. So if you uh, could, you know, maybe pause for a moment and say a prayer for the Rosebro family and uh, for the issue that God knows about, and just pray that His will would be done, and we will trust that uh, God will do what it is that God does best, and that His will will be done, and He'll be glorified through this situation. So. Anyway, so let me tell you what I got on deck for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. The answer is, well, I'm going to be turning the microphone over to Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, a man whom I have no problem turning the microphone over to. We're going to be listening to the next lecture. Now, technically, this is lecture number seven um, on the uh, on uh, Luther's commentary on uh, Paul's epistle to the Galatians. So... This is lecture number seven. It runs, you know, roughly about an hour. I'm not going to interrupt it. And at the end of the program, we'll just, you know, ease out uh, with some music. So just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, well, this is listener-supported radio. And and as we draw closer to the end of the year, as you consider some of your year-end giving to uh, those 
uh, ministries and uh, and outreaches that are, are promoting the gospel and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for your sins, please also keep fighting for the faith in mind. Um, we try to run a tight ship here, yet at the same time, as our audience grows, so do our expenses. And so we truly, really do depend upon your generous gifts to keep doing what we're doing. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, make yourself comfortable. This is a fantastic lecture. And without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. It was a couple of weeks uh, since I've been here, and I'd like to do the last, last of Chapter 2, dive into Chapter 3. You've got an outline compressed of what we'll do today and next week, and my hope is we can do Chapter 3 in just a couple of meetings. That may not turn out to be true, but I'll give it everything I've got. And then a couple of meetings on 4, and that is the extent of that. Volume 26 is chapters 1 through 4, and then volume 27 has chapters 5 and 6. I worked all summer, and I didn't get to volume 27, but maybe someday in the future. Um, In the last verses, Luther is expositing those verses that say, For if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. We did a little of this two weeks ago. Again, he reminds us this is the entire law, not just the ceremonial. And if we ask, is it true or not that Christ died, then we ask, did he die to no purpose or not? And Luther contends it's insane to deny that he died. And he thinks it's also insane to deny that there was purpose to it. Uh, He thinks it's sane to say Christ died for us. And then he expounds, if he did not die to no purpose, then righteousness is not through the law. You can see he's using it in that particular 16th century way for a particular argument. Um, If you acquire righteousness by obeying, then Christ died to no purpose and is of no use to you. That's very close to Paul's text. Um, that Christ is of no use to you if you keep going back to the law. Uh, Nullifying the grace of God, says Luther, is a very great and a very common sin. All the self-righteous commit it. He blames the Pope for a lot of it. He darkened and buried the gospel and argues why he's saying that. Says he, we assert with Paul, either Christ died to no purpose or the law does not justify. But Christ did not die to no purpose, therefore the law does not justify. If the law could justify, then Christ acted foolishly when he gave himself for our sins. We conclude that we are justified not by any kind of merit, condign or congruent, but simply by faith in Christ. If my, quote, if my salvation was worth so much to Christ that he had to die for my sins, then my works and the righteousness of the law are vile. Uh, okay, I think that's the sense of it. Uh, to, 21b, to seek to be justified by the works of the law is to reject the grace of God. We don't think like this. But to seek to be justified by the works of the law is to reject the grace of God. Luther, Luther will not give us any middle way here. And uh, he really 
believes that he's expositing the sense of the text. It isn't Luther's clever theology. He's believing that this is the sense of the text, and he's going to hammer it. Um, There is no sin more common than this one, to seek to be justified by the works of the law. But what is this but to deny Christ? It buries his benefits, and it frustrates the grace of God. But since Christ's suffering death is the case, he suffered for us. Righteousness by any other means than Christ alone is horrible, is blasphemous. But he says this is the view that very commonly reigns. And it amounts to rejecting the grace of God uh, and so forth. Saying that Christ died in vain. But the law cannot justify. If it could, Christ would have been foolish. All right, thus far to the end of two. Let's charge into three. And again, I remind you, what we're doing here is very prosaic and low level. Um, We're just treating the book as a great book. All right. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That ye not obey the truth, before whose eyes Christ has been evidently set forth, as crucified among you, sharply sharply rebukes the Galatians, not just for falling away, but so quickly falling away. Hmm? Sounds harsh, says Luther. He calls them fools, calls them bewitched, calls them disobedient to the truth. Is this abuse? Luther says, no. In this kind of a say, uh, case, it's legitimate and necessary for an apostle to reprove like this. And the same thing he says is true of pastor, teacher, magistrate. We're lazy if we don't. Must be fatherly, not seeking destruction, but the welfare of the hearees. It's to call them back. It's to rescue them. He said, compare Christ reviling the Pharisees. Then Galatians, the word Galatians. Notice, says Luther, Paul does not address them as brethren. He instead calls them by their national name. Now, there was a a tradition that said that particular nations have particular vices. And Luther says, perhaps this is what he's doing. He goes back to the that notion. And the one that Galatians is said to have been is unstable. Their national vice was instability. Luther says, Paul is saying that you, in so soon departing from the gospel, are, are proving that that reputation of yours is true. Then he goes on to say how the Germans ought to be called Galatians, but I'll spare you that. But he does. The Germans are unstable in this way, too. Who has bewitched you? so that you do not obey the truth. Notice, one of the ways in which the New Testament speaks of conversion is obedience to the truth. It's of the gospel, but obedience to the truth. It's not the only way, of course, but notice that's one of the ways the New Testament speaks of coming into Christ is obedience to what's true. Okay. Paul here uh, sort of excuses the Galatians or shifts the blame to the false teachers. I see it was not of your own accord or malice that you fell, he says later. 
confidence in righteousness of the law often causes a person, says Luther, to to despise what is true. It bewitches. In spiritual bewitchment, Satan attacks the mind first, as opposed to the senses, convinces a person that false and wicked opinions are true. As an example, he uses uh, the fanatics, the Anabaptists, uh, and he illustrates with one I'd never heard before, it must have been commonly said during his day, or in a book that he doesn't footnote, some parents who were convinced that their daughter was no longer a human being but a cow. <laughs> and of course, people brought the facts to bear that they were misseeing this matter, but Luther said it's as if they were under a bewitchment that the facts couldn't overcome it. And he says, this sort of bewitchment deceives not just the smug, though it certainly deceives the smug, but he said, even those who think properly concerning the word. He said, Satan attacks me here. How? He obscures Christ for me. We must learn his tricks. First uh, Peter 5, says Luther. It doesn't just apply to the Galatians, but to all of us, even the strong. Then, in a kind of a backwards way, he says, but Satan's attacks here actually have an advantage to us. It confirms our doctrine and strengthens our faith in Christ. Then he goes to the false apostles bewitched you with the doctrine of the law. You now believe otherwise than you once believed about Christ and his dying. Paul, we are laboring to break a spell. Luther, same with us in the fanatics, using the word to attempt to break the spell, but usually it only hardens them against the gospel. Satan here appears as if a figure of Christ. Many are driven by bewitchment, he says, to the point of despair, even suicide. For something that was a bewitchment, for something that wasn't the case. Pastors face this a lot, uh, the, the depth of the despondency and the despair such that I, my sin is so great it's unreachable, even Christ's blood couldn't fix it. And the pastor's up against that with the promises that no matter what in the background, Christ's death is greater than it. And it seems to us when we're under bewitchment just impossible to be true. What our, what our intuition is telling us has got to be right and what pastor's saying from the scriptures can't be. Huh? The content of the false apostles' bewitchment, again, were justified by works of law, or in the Pope's case, human traditions. It's an expression, says Luther, of contempt on Paul's part. An expression of spite against the false apostles. That they did not obey the truth, that is, the truth of the gospel. You've deserted, you've defected from the truth that you previously embraced and believed. Luther paraphrases, I'm afraid you're done for. I'm afraid you're done for. Now remember, you see the absence of morality in all of this? In other words, it's not the point. Paul's whole letter is theological, and he gets much more exercised in this letter than he does, say, to the Corinthians, where it's 
Berlin and Las Vegas and whatever all thrown together. Much more exercised here. That, that this is a, a battle to the death, and it's theological. Okay? Um, the righteousness of the law bewitches so that a person cannot see or obey the truth. He, he illustrates with some of the sects. Once they leave, nothing can get them to return. They're hardened in their position. When somebody talks grace, Christ, death, uh, and so forth, it hardens them. Um, and you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. This is even more harsh. It's as if, says Luther, Paul said, I placarded Christ cruci crucified to you when I was amongst you. I, I placarded Christ crucified so vividly it was as if you could have touched him. And still you're disobeying the truth. So he's convicting the Galatians on the basis of their own experience. They once embraced that, now they don't, or they're waffling. He refers back to his earlier arguments. This, this business, as Christ cru as crucified among you, is very harsh, says Luther. Such people even crucify Christ who had been living and reigning in them. Before the gospel was revealed, we were all unable to judge any of these things. We were blind. Um, we were in the trap of human traditions that obscured Christ and made him useless to us. But now that the gospel has been made known, uh, if we still seek to be justified by the law, we're not just deniers, we're not just murderers. We're the guiltiest crucifiers of Christ. Luther, who would believe it's a horrible, a terrible crime to become a religious, that is, a priest, a monk, or a nun? But he says Christ dies most miserably in them. They will not acknowledge that Christ is primarily the justifier and the propitiator and the savior, but only as accuser, judge, and condemner who's got to be placated by our works and merits. Uh, Luther knows this firsthand uh, by being a monk, how that goes, and he's willing to share it. The noxious doctrine of the papacy, the monstrous, this monstrous illusion of the devil, the notion of our own righteousness, bewitched nearly all of us. None of us could see Christ as mediator and savior. We only saw him as judge. This is to, as Paul says, blaspheme Christ, to nullify the grace of God, and to make Christ's death of no effect. Useless. And he says, Paul adds, in you, purposely. If we seek to be justified by the works or law, Christ is crucified in us. That is, we deny the Lord who purchased us with his blood, 2 Peter 2. We crucify him again in ourselves. Paul emphasizes two arguments. First, the Galatians have been taken captive and bewitched by the devil. They don't anymore listen to the truth that was portrayed so clearly before their eyes. And secondly, they crucify Christ again in themselves. So Paul condemns the righteousness of law and of works and accuses uh, that sort of thing of crucifying the Son of God again. We don't think like this. We think we're becoming more pious. And Luther's on it. 
Um, you cannot mix fire and water to get fire water. Huh? Mm. This is digital. This is binary. This is on off. Okay? We will seem to be condemning even the law of God. We're not, but it'll look that way. Next, Paul presents an argument from the Galatians' own experience. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing Christ with faith? Hmm? Or hearing with faith? Since you've become my teacher, he says to the Galatians, let me just ask you one question. They knew that they had never received the Holy Spirit by the works of the law, but simply by hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. Paul is again referring to the entire law and says one of these must be true and the other false. Either the Galatians received the Holy Spirit by works of law or they received the Holy Spirit freely, gratuitously, simply by hearing the gospel preached and grasping Christ in faith. One or the other. There are only two ways of justification, says Luther, either by the word of the gospel or by the law and works. Paul, when you were under the law and doing its works, you never received the Holy Spirit. But as soon as you heard the the gospel, and before you could do any works, you did receive the Holy Spirit. Conclusion. Even a zealous attempt to live according to the law is useless for for justification. Uh, Wearing oneself out in vain. Uh, Luther looks back on his life as a monk and says, all of it misguided. We didn't know any better, any of us, but it was all misguided. It's a powerful argument, says Luther, repeated often in the book of, Act, often in the book of Acts. He traces it, Pentecost, Acts 2, House of Cornelius, Acts 10, Barnabas and Paul, Acts 15. He says the entire book of Acts is like this. People receive the Holy Spirit freely when they believe in Christ, and they're Gentiles, so they didn't even know, really, what it is to obey Moses because they've never heard of Moses. Hmm? Our opponents do not observe what is being discussed in the book of Acts. I used to read this book, says Luther. I didn't understand anything at all in it. The Gentiles, in the book of Acts... The term is not to be understood in its natural sense, but it's in its theological sense. Those without the law, not under the law. They do not perform the law in its works. They're not circumcised. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. And they receive the Holy Spirit. How? Not through the law in its works. They don't have the law. But gratis, gratuitously, freely, without cost, that's Rosenblatt, that's not Luther, (laughs) by the hearing in the gospel. They don't do anything, nor do they look to any preceding works. They're not thinking about the law, much less keeping it. They're not sacrificing. They're not concerned about undergoing circumcision. They just listen to what Peter says. The Jews were amazed at this. It was unheard of. It was intolerable to them at first, says Luther. Gave the greatest possible offense to the believing Jewish Christians. Uh, Cites uh, Romans 9. And understandably, the Jewish Christians murmured against these new Gentile Christians. Quote, 
If the law doesn't justify, why did God burden us with it? I would have done the same thing. Huh? Look, is th if this is what it was, why did we have to go through all we went through? Huh? You're letting these people in for free. The answer is I let you in for free too. <laughs> why was there a council convoked at Jerusalem for this reason? Peter's answer to his fellow Jews overturns the entire law at once. That's Acts 11 and Acts 15. God has freely granted to Gentiles the gift of his Holy Spirit. Luther, it means we should love this book of Acts because it's filled with firm testimonies that can comfort and sustain us against the papists who are our Jews. Luther, what we teach and why. Uh, we teach it things a person may do. You can fast, you can give alms, you should obey your parents, but none of it justifies. But simply hearing the voice of the bridegroom, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified and believing it does justify, whereas the other doesn't. We learn here again the import of the distinction between the law and the gospel. The law never brings the Holy Spirit, never justifies. It just teaches what ought to be done. The gospel, however, does bring the Holy Spirit. It teaches what we ought to receive for free. These are two contrary doctrines. To put righteousness into the law is to conflict with the gospel. The law is a taskmaster. It demands that we work. It does not give anything. The gospel, on the contrary, does not demand anything. It grants freely. Then he tackles that his opponents, that's always the Roman Catholic polemicists, they cite Cornelius against us. That Cornelius was a good man, therefore he merited the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. Luther, I reply, Cornelius was a Gentile. He was not circumcised. He did not observe the law. He did not even think about the law. And yet he's justified and receives the gift of the Spirit. That means, says Luther, that the law neither, neither helps nor contributes to righteousness. Otherwise, God would have granted the Holy Spirit only to choose. Hmm. So experience testifies that the Holy Spirit is granted to those who do not keep the law. And consequently, righteousness does not come from the law. But, says our opponent, Cornelius was a good man. Luther, I reply, he was, on account of his faith in the coming Christ. Hmm? Same as all the patriarchs, all the prophets, all the devout kings in the Old Testament, they were righteous for the same reason, believing in the one who was to come, who would be the Savior. He said, the problem here is the sophists don't understand faith in the coming Christ, and they don't understand faith in Christ who's already come either. They understand neither one. Uh, but we have to understand that distinction. Uh, and he goes to tree and fruit. This argument stands very firmly. Cornelius was justified without the law. Therefore, the law does not justify. Then he gives examples of God justifying men without the law. Naaman the Syrian, kings of Egypt, Babylon, Job, other oriental peoples, Nineveh. Remember that one from Jonah? Why was it that Jonah said, not I? Why was he so angry? <laughs> he finally said it. I know what kind of a God you are. And if I go there and preach, they're going to repent. 
No. <laughs> I identify with Jonah. <laughs> then a section on how things fared for people trying to observe the law under the papacy. We tormented ourselves miserably, ruining our bodies in the process, in the process and we never arrived at tranquility or a tranquil conscience. Because the law doesn't justify. Faith in Christ does. Uh, we should have known this from the word, but we were all of us immersed in such horrible darkness we couldn't judge rightly about anything. We were always in doubt. We could never be certain of the will of God. We could never attain the knowledge of God or of ourselves or of our vocation. But now that the truth of the gospel is shining, we receive certain instructions solely through hearing of Christ in faith. Luther, why I speak about this at such length. The human heart doesn't believe that such a great prize as the Holy Spirit can be granted solely through hearing with faith. How it thinks. Well, for something that important, we certainly must do something. Now, you've never thought that, but I have. Then he says, Luther says, the devil magnifies that within us and in our hearts. Our reason says, you're making forgiveness of sins too meager and contemptible. You're despising the gift. And Luther says, we must learn this by all means. Forgiveness of sins, Christ, the Holy Spirit are all granted freely simply by hearing with faith. And it's always faith in Christ. Even our huge sins don't stand in the way. It pleases God to grant all these gifts to us freely. Sort of like an essay by Lewis one time called The Weight of Glory. He said, I'm going to exposit uh, a verse that to an Englishman is almost embarrassing. We blush at things like this. But it, it was the one that, that spoke of God taking delight in those whom he had adopted. Uh, the weight of glory, W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of glory. Our reason is offended. Um, oh, before that, um, in this, in hearing of Christ and simply embracing what he, who he is and what he did for me, then I don't consider my sin and my unworthiness. I just consider the fatherly will that he has toward me, and I accept the gift with joy, and I'm happy. And I'm grateful for such a gift. He said, none of this came to us when we were monks. None of it. Our reason is offended by this, and Luther counters that. And our opponents regard faith as an inconsequential matter, and he tackles that. Um, Part of what you must know is that the true Council of Trent, Roman Catholic, understands faith not the way you do. Faith is more cognitive to the Roman Catholic and it amounts to coming to the position, I believe whatever the church teaches. Isn't trust in Christ. It's the same word, but it's not used the same way. Uh, To us, it seems to us obvious from a whole boodle of verses that faith functions soteriologically um, as the alternative to us looking at our virtues and our goodness and our this and that's got to die and bet all the blue chips on somebody else and what he did one afternoon and three days later and that's all we've got other than that we're utterly bankrupt all of that is a product of luther and the reformation and they thought it was all over the place in saint paul 
not only St. Paul, but particularly St. Paul. But the real, real Roman Catholic, not the Vatican II Catholic, the real guy, uh, believes that faith means arriving at, I believe, whatever the church teaches. Okay, digression, but sometimes necessary. Okay. Um, okay, three. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? <clears throat> He begin, Paul begins to exhort the Galatians and warn them from a twofold danger. The first we read here in verse 3. And the second is, did you experience so many things in vain? Now, of course, this is rhetorical, says Luther. Um, it's to warn from dangers, but second, it's to persuade. It's as if, he's, as he says later, you were running well, what happened? Then here... Uh, Paul opposes the flesh and the spirit, and Luther, uh, to his readers in the day, had to explain a little about this. Flesh does not mean lust. Flesh here is the righteousness of the old Adam, the righteousness of the flesh, or the righteousness of reason. That is, again, that aspect of us which seeks justification by means of the law. Says Luther, Paul uses the term flesh to refer to whatever is the best, the most outstanding within man, in man, the highest wisdom of reason, and the righteousness of the law. Um, then, he said, Luther says, what Paul is referring to here by spirit has to do with uh, justification. Flesh is a justification by obedience to law. Spirit refers to hearing Christ with faith. Now, Paul always has the false apostles in view here. Uh, They said that belief in Christ was necessary, but that it doesn't forgive sin or grant eternal life. For those, we must observe the law. That's always Paul's target here. That same thesis that you're adding back in what you never should have added back in. Anyone teaching justification by law is doing the greatest possible damage to Christian consciences. Luther, that's the first danger. To be seek to be seek to be justified by the law means to lose the spirit, and here he means to make exactly the wrong move move with regard to how we're justified before God. Then second, as I mentioned, did you experience so many things in vain? That is, to trust the righteousness of the law, your own righteousness, is to lose inestimable possessions that were already yours in faith. This, says Luther, is truly pathetic. The subject here is enormous, and the false teachers do this not only easily, but worse. They do it with a pretext of piety or spirituality. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Here Paul Luther says, Paul uh, inserts a softness to the rebuke, lest he terrify the Galatians. It's still a scold, but he puts on some oil as to not drive them to despair. He adds, if it really is. Um, That is, I haven't altogether discarded my hopes for you. If you'll only return to your senses. 
If you end in the flesh, then all of your confidence in God is empty and your sufferings were useless. He says, Paul speaks to them a little harshly because of the very importance of this issue. It's a duty. They've gone off the edge. As a physician, Paul puts nearly all the blame on the false teachers. Verse 5, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works powerful deeds among you do it by the works of the law? Or does he do it by hearing with faith in Christ? And here uh, Paul repeats his argument. God freely gave his spirit and other great gifts to the Galatians, uh, seemingly even worked miracles there. Um, So Luther expounds what Paul says about what preaching Christ had accomplished amongst the Galatians, great deeds of the spirit. You believed, you lived holy lives, you produced much fruit of faith, you suffered much evil, you loved your neighbors, you surrendered your money, your lives, everything you've loved. All these things you were doing before the false apostles arrived. Now, how is it that you're not still producing the same powerful deeds? And how is it you're ambivalent toward me? Who corrupted you? Luther parallels with his day again with the papists and Anabaptists. Then back to the Galatians. Experience should have taught you that those powerful deeds weren't a result of obeying the law. There were such deeds among you earlier, but now not so. And then he again jumps on the papacy and uh, on the sectarians with regard to baptism, supper, and so forth. Um, well, I probably should say a little bit about that. Um, he, he singles out the sectarians of his day, the fanatics, and uses the German proverb, which I didn't know at all, fishing ahead of the net. That is, um, they drove away all the fish that the net was about to catch. All we were doing, says Luther, was preaching Christ and justification in Christ. Um, They didn't help us at all in this early preaching of Christ. They kept silence. And then when they saw that the that the uh, tilt was toward the evangelical faith, uh, then they started stirring up tumults and nearly crushed us and and strengthened the side of the papacy. Uh, Tumults bother neither the devil nor the pope, but the doctrine of justification in Christ bothers both. All right, so, and then Luther gives an offer to the pope. I'm willing to bear your laws if only you leave them free. Do not bind consciences with them so that men think they're justified by observing them and damned for not observing them. But, says Luther, he will not, and he does not do this. What that would, the power would go. Thus Abraham believed God, verse 6. Thus Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the reformers are always going to grab a hold of that one, and you can see why. Um, the example of Abraham. Abraham was justified before God, not because he worked, but because he believed. He quotes the full text. It was reckoned to him, were written not just for Abraham, but for our sakes. By using the words, Abraham believed, Paul makes the faith in Christ to come the supreme worship, the supreme duty, the supreme obedience, and the supreme sacrifice. 
This and this alone gives the glory to God and not to us or not to man or not to Abraham. Quote, to believe in him, the coming Christ, to regard him as truthful, wise, righteous, merciful, and almighty, in short, to acknowledge him as the author and donor of every good gift. Reason doesn't do this, but faith does. Faith justifies because it renders to God the glory and honor due him. And then he compares how reason singles out the absurdity of supper, baptism, Christ crucified, never understands this stuff, that the supreme act of worship is to hear the voice of God and the promises and to believe them. Faith slaughters reason and kills the beast. I winced. There's another one for the ones in our group that want to gather together a few sayings. But at least here you've got a context of what he means. It's it's that on this particular thing, reason won't help you. Just hear the word of the promise uh, and just let God drive that into you and then work out from that. Okay. If you're interested, Dr. Anderson's new book on Lutheran reason. Uh, and I don't know how to tell you to get it, though. It's published in English, but is printed in Germany. Uh, and I can't tell you how to get to it. Do you know, Dan? There's a link <clears throat> Anyway, his dissertation was on Lutheran reason. His major reader, tutor, was Alistair McGrath at Oxford, and his second reader was Dr. Montgomery. And Dr. Montgomery got together early with uh, Mr. Anderson and said, what you're going to do is to write a better version of Garish's Grace and Reason. For decades, the book we've all looked to on that subject, Grace and Reason, was Dr. Garish of the University of Chicago. And Dr. Montgomery said to Dave, you're going to redo that only better. So it's available now, though published in Germany. It's in English, but published in Germany. A little bit of a plug. Okay, so faith in Christ... And faith in Christ by itself attributes the glory to God that he deserves, Romans 4. What does Christian righteousness consist in then? Two things. First, faith in Christ. And second, the divine imputation. God reckons to the believer as if he possessed all of Christ's righteousness, but it really amounts to a covering. Um. Uh, think wedding robe. How do you get into the wedding? Well, the chief of the wedding has to give you a robe. I, I won't press that. I'll leave to the exegetes. But um, that robe of righteousness, they, a lot of exegetes will say, is a way of picturing imputed right, reckoned righteousness. Uh, God sees you clothed in the blood of Christ and therefore sees no uh, fault in you, whatever. Wesley always waffled on this one for the same reason others did. Gosh, if you preach that, it'll turn into moral chaos in your congregation. Luther and Paul answer, not at all. It's just the opposite. Keep trying the other way and see how it goes. You know, uh, add works to Christ's death and see how it goes. And then come back and talk to me when it's all on the floor. I used to tell my Westmont students, just in case the... Uh, victorious Christian life ever cracks, before you go to hard atheism, try a Reformation church. We consider that normal, those ups and downs. 
So Abraham believes God and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. And Luther says it's particular, the promise of the seed. Hmm? There's going to be a seed and righteousness will be coming through him. And Abraham believed that. So the sophists dispute about imputation, don't like it at all, neither did Wesley. Um, God depicts himself otherwise than reason can judge or grasp. Quote, if you wish to placate me, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only son. Then I will accept you and I will pronounce you, and I would say as if, righteous. Hmm? Major thing in the Reformation. Reason retorts, then good works are for nothing? And Luther digresses a little. We've already gone through that. So Christian righteousness is defined properly as first a trust in Jesus Christ. It's a divine gift to us. And second, God reckons this imperfect faith of ours as if perfect righteousness because we've grasped or trusted a perfect Christ who imputes his righteousness to us as if really ours. Now, you can imagine the size of the Reformation fight over this. And it was. Uh, the canon lawyers of Rome up against Luther, Melanchthon, and the others, and Calvin. This is a major, major fight. So, let every Christian learn completely this doctrine of Christian righteousness by reading St. Paul diligently. One of the things this means is that a Christian is both righteous and a sinner at the same time. Now, you get a lawyer into that conversation, and, you know, wait a minute. It's got to be one or the other. We're in their grounds, righteousness. But Luther thinks he's got plenty in St. Paul to... uh to flesh this out, probably the best place you see it um, is uh, when Paul's talking about the perfect righteousness, which is ours in simply trusting Christ. <coughs> and then in Romans 7, which Lutherans, I hope, still believe is still Paul as a Christian, not before he came to know the Lord. The good that I want to do, I'm never doing. The things I hate doing, I'm always doing. Wretched man that I am, who'll deliver me from the body of this death? And I told my Westmont students, there's the best verse in the New Testament on the nature of the Christian life. And they just about hyperventilated. <laughs> Why? Because no Christian can talk like that. Huh? That must be Paul before he came to know the Lord. Now, in the Greek, it's present indicative. It isn't that I was, it's that I am. And it happens that one of the people in our circles, one of the scholars in our circles, Dr. Middendorf, did his dissertation on that. The book is called The Eye, and it's the letter, The Eye of the Storm. It's on that, those last verses in Romans chapter 7. Your Wesleyan friends will just about faint, you know, when you say that, that here's a great description of how it goes for the Christian. Anyway, it makes for a long... It's efficient to get the conversation going, that's for sure. <laughs> if you want to get right to it, use that. Um, but uh, the Reformation believes that, that uh, 
all the treasures are freely given in Christ, all of them, and gratuitously or for free or on the basis of his merit, and then things go roughly. Or, to paraphrase badly, if you think you've had trouble in life being a non-Christian, try becoming a Christian and they'll get worse. Hmm? I think we should have done with that business that the evangelicals do of come to Christ and your life will get better. I I just don't see many verses that read like that. You know, uh, there's no way it seems to me that, that uh, the talk goes. All right. So the Christian is both righteous and a sinner at the same time, both holy and profane. Um, paradoxical. But it seems to be that the verses lead to this. Um, we are, I'll give you an example, visual example. When I first got to California, already that um, pastoral robe, that alb was in vogue. You know, the baptismal garment. And I got to Southern California and I found, you know, there was no preaching of imputed righteousness. So I bought what's called a cassock and a surplus. I had first reacted against my liberal Lutheran graduates, they, the ones who believed the least had the most dress. And I went back, and I bought a Geneva gown in reaction. Then I got out to California, and I realized the Lutherans just weren't doing much with imputed righteousness. So I went back to the garb of the 50s, where there's a black cassock, which was the street garb for a priest. And then over it is this white little thing like a choir boy wears, huh? That's to visually say... What's the dark? That's me. Huh? And over the top, God places Christ and covers me with the righteousness of Christ. Huh? I was interested down in San Diego last week. I One other, it wasn't John. He had a chasuble. But one of the other guys had cask and surplus. And I asked him, I said, how did you arrive at doing that against the flow of the baptismal robe. What was there a rationale to it? Anyway, so this is the definition definition of Christian righteousness. Uh, the belief in Jesus Christ as who he is and what he did, and that God has imputed to us that righteousness or covered us with it, uh, such that like Abraham, Abraham believed the, the promise concerning the seed and it was reckoned to him as if it were righteousness. You want to grab that verse, huh? It's, it's, it's paradigm case. Uh, we wrestle with our moral behavior, this, that way, and the other way, and we spend 90% of our energies on the subject that isn't central in Galatians. Huh? Um, or I see this worked out in ecclesiastical ways where if, if it has to do with something that's moral, everybody gets excited. But, you know, if it has to do with something doctrinal, and I mean central, not just anything, central doctrinal, people are sort of bored. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's backwards. It's backwards, huh? Uh, everybody foams and froths about things moral in a religion. That's not just Christians. But not everybody froths and is bothered by something that takes away from free justification and imputed righteousness. Then things don't seem to froth, which means we're out of line with what Paul's doing here. Huh? 
I mean, I'm bothered by the moral behavior of the church, but not nearly so much as I'm bothered by false doctrine. And people think I'm some kind of screwball. I'm just reflecting what was going on in the 16th century. Huh? Anyway. Okay, let me stop there. I'll hold you over. I don't know if we'll make it to the end of chapter 3 next Sunday, but I'll try. You've got the whole thing anyway in kind of summary form there in your hands. Bring it back if you want to next Sunday. And uh, feel free to leave. It's half past the hour. And I'll stay for a couple of minutes if also somebody wants to ask a question or two. Uh, We're at the heart of it here. We're at the heart of the book. Could you explain why um, uh, Luther thinks that uh, the flesh refers or has the meaning that you described rather than, I mean, to me, I I read it and I I, want to make the same mistake that Pastor Rohde was talking about today in church and say, flesh bad, spirit good. Yes. Um, This is a lexicography question. It's pure lexicography and Luther's right. When you go to Sark's, in the University of Chicago, Arndt Gingrich lexicon, it's both the classical, uh, or we'd say secular, tracing of a word, and the Koine New Testament tracing of a word, and it doesn't primarily refer to this. And, and Paul and Luther are making use of it in the same way we talk old Adam, new creature. And they are convinced that that's the lexicographical definition and holds the cable holds the last thing that we want to say is that it has to do with our corporeal nature and that the spirit is the real us in us and you want to flee from that sort of stuff so we've already got it kind of you know whatever it is it isn't that but i think luther has the lexicon on his side here not just in Koine. I think you can find equivalency also in classical. Okay. I want to ask you, um, my understanding of the word sophist is teacher. How do you use it here? Luther is using it sarcastically. The set is what we would call the scholastics. The scholastics. Only he isn't even paying them the homage of calling them the Scholastics or St. Thomas. He, sophists goes back to uh, Socrates. Uh, I would say lawyers, but you know you can you can talk to me later about that. The Sophists in Socrates' day were those he said who purposely made the weaker argument appear as if it were the stronger, consciously. Socrates hated them. They were self-certified teachers and professors who came to cities and gathered together groups of students who would pay them tuition. And Socrates thought that what they were teaching wasn't worth a lick. Uh, But Luther picks that up, that sarcastic term, the sophists, and sends it right into the center of Rome. It's a term of derision and it's an epithet. It's a pejorative. It's a spit word. And he picks it on purpose. Okay. Uh, Lord willing, I'll see you next Sunday. We'll see whether we can get through it. If we don't, then I'm going to ask we can go just a little longer and finish it.